When I arrived to have coffee with a friend of mine one day, I walked into the coffee shop and she presented me with this bunch of enormous great liliums. She said, these are to say thank you. What for? I asked her. She said, don't worry about that. Let's sit down and have coffee and we'll have a chat. I'll tell you later. Now, if you come back to, with me to the last Saturday in June in 1980, I was 33 pre weeks pregnant with our first baby and things started to go wrong. So they put me into hospital and put me on medication, try and stop me from going into labour. And they said, basically, we just kind of wait and see what happens. Now, Mum said to me, if you have to have this baby early, it's got to be born on the 1st of July between 7 and 7.30 p.m. Now, any of you who've ever known a pregnant woman, that's ridiculous to say something like that. Um, pregnant women have a mind of their own and so do babies. After I had to stop doing dentistry, because seriously, my neck and my elbow would not sit like that drilling and filling all day long anymore. After that, I worked for obstetricians. Now, we would spend a minimum of 45 minutes organising a planned caesarean or a planned induction. And as fast as you could do that, 40% of women decided to have the baby some other time and all that paperwork was out the window. So it was a waste of space. Anyway, like a dutiful daughter, our first baby, Luke, was born on the 1st of July, right on the dot of 7.30. Now, why did Mum make such a strange request? Mum and Dad had three children and we were all born between 7 and 7.30 p.m. None of this silly four o'clock in the morning business. And if my grandma was still alive, she would have been 90 on the 1st of July, 1980. So that was a special day to Mum. So Luke was born six and a half weeks early and he was absolutely fine. But if you know anything about prem babies, they don't actually want to be out here. They'd rather be in here where it's warm and cosy and absolutely everything is done for them. So a nurse will come and wake the baby up in the middle of the night so that you can feed them. So on the third day, the nurse came in, woke me up and she said, Luke's really cold. I'm going to take him down to the nursery to warm him up and he'll be back by breakfast time, so you go back to sleep. So I turned over and went back to sleep. When I woke up and look, looked over to where Luke's cot should have been, it wasn't there. So my heart took a leap. I had no idea what to think. Shortly after, the obstetrician came in and he said, or he asked me, what time's Ron coming to see you today? I said, he can't come till about nine o'clock tonight. And he said, that's fine. I'll come and see you both then. But in the meantime, Luke has to stay in the neonatal unit and I'll get a nurse to take you to see him. Now, I've told you my background's in dentistry. So if I'm on the other end of a scalpel and I'm lancing an abscess and dealing with m blood and muck and whatever, or extracting a tooth um, or taking the nerve out of a tooth, I'm absolutely fine. I'm not so good when I'm watching someone else do that. And nobody had thought to warn me that if you can't find a decent vein in a baby's foot or their hand, there's a fabulous one right in the middle of their forehead. So when, when I walked in, there's my three-day-old baby with a drip in his head. I thought I was going to pass out. It was awful. When the doctor came in that night, he said, Luke's picked up a hospital infection. He's very, very ill. We've got him on heavy duty antibiotics, but we won't know for 24 hours whether they're going to work. 
your baby might die. So here I was, two days away from my 24th birthday, being told that we might lose our baby. Fortunately, that didn't happen. Luke's now six foot three, big broad shoulders, and he's just finished 23 years as an aircraft engineer. So his rocky start didn't hold him back. But that patch for a few days where we didn't know what was going to happen, I labelled anticipatory grief, and I thought I'd coined that phrase, but I've since read it in all sorts of places. There's all the what ifs. You know, what if this happens? What if that happens? How are we going to deal with it? So it was pretty scary. When Luke was two and a half, I was pregnant again. They'd done all sorts of tests to see if they could figure out why he was early and nothing showed up. I went into labour at 25 weeks and they couldn't stop it this time. So our second baby, Katie, was born 15 weeks early and she only lived for just over an hour. Nobody seems to know how to deal with miscarriages, with stillbirths, or with what they call perinatal demise. It's a horrible term, but it's babies who die straight after they're born. So for a lot of people, they actually just pretend that you were never pregnant. Nobody wants to talk about it. So my side of the family were okay with it, but my husband's side of the family have still never ever mentioned Katie. It's like she didn't exist. So you kind of deal with this sort of a grief on your own. It's, it's a tricky time. The only person who did mention it was Auntie Marge. Now, does anybody here have someone who they'd consider to be a kindred spirit? Someone that the minute you meet them, you feel like you've known them forever? Yeah, every audience I've ever asked that question of, there's, there's always one or two people who, who know what I'm talking about. That's how I was with Ron's Auntie Marge. The minute we met, we could talk about anything and everything. She was amazing. She asked me one day, how are you going to deal with losing Katie? I said, well, I reckon I've got three choices. I can drive off Old Belair Road, which is a one-way trip. I said, I'm not going to do that. I can sit around and get mopey and miserable and depressed. I've never done that before and I don't want to do that now. Or I can figure out how to get through it. And in time we did. And thankfully, Ron and I were both able to keep talking. So there was always communication. Sometimes one partner will shut down and then there isn't really a way through it. And all Luke knew at two and a half was that mum and dad were sad. When Luke was four and a half, I was pregnant again. And even though they'd done a surgical procedure to try and prevent me having a prem baby, I still went into labour at 25 weeks. So I ended up in hospital. They managed to stall things for about five weeks and then Catherine was born. And she actually did really well with all the prem baby stuff. She caught up on everything by the time she was two. Has anybody here either watched the movie or read the book about Pollyanna? She was a little girl, she lived in the town of Harrington, it, it's fictitious, but she was a little girl who just wanted everyone to be happy. So she used to trot around playing the glad game you know, she was always encouraging people to see if they could be glad about something. Catherine was just like that. She wanted everybody to be happy. Now, I remember one day when Dad was not feeling very well, he was laying on his bed, so she climbed up next to him and gave him a peck on the cheek. I said, does that make you feel better, Grandpa? And of course it did. In July, 
1989, we went to Second Valley for the weekend to my in-laws shack. So it was the middle of winter. All the waves were crashing in over the rocks. Anybody here been to Second Valley? Okay, so you know about this lovely horseshoe, little horseshoe beach. That was knee deep in seaweed. So the kids are squelching around in, in, in their gum boots, having a wonderful time. And because the waves were crashing so much, all this foam had sort of built up on the beach and Catherine kept calling it the wobbly foam. So they were having a ball. On the way home, I dropped Ron and Catherine at his parents' place. Ron was going to do some work for them. They've got a property at Wollonga. Um, and Catherine was having a sleepover with Granny and Grandpa, and so she was really excited. And Luke and I went home. I had to go back to work, and he was going back to school. On the 19th of July, I woke up at 2am. My sister, who lived a couple of k's away, woke up at 2am. And my best friend, who lived around the corner, woke up at 2am. And of course, we all went back to sleep. At 4.30, there was a knock at the wooden front door. I opened the door to everyone's worst nightmare. There were the police and Ron. Where's Catherine? I blurted out. They asked if they could come in. We sat down in the lounge room. It was cold. The fire had gone out from the night before. They said, we're sorry to inform you, Catherine was pronounced dead at Norlunga Hospital at 2am. I have this firm belief that people who care about each other are just energetically connected. You know when somebody rings you and you say, I was just about to ring you, or I was just thinking of you, or whatever. That's what was happening with my sister and my friend and I. We had a friend who was in Irian Jaya in the Highlands, and when she came home the next time, oh, she, I actually received a letter from her months later because we could only exchange two letters a year. When she came home um, on furlough the next time, we were talking about it and she said, on that week, I just could not get you out of my head. So even over there in another part of the world, there's this energetic connection. So here we are, we've lost another child. There was just this blackness that descended on me. I felt like I was in the bottle of, bottom of this muddy, slimy pit that I couldn't claw my way out of. I was unmotivated. The only reason I got out of bed was to make Luke's sandwich and to walk him to school. That's, that was my total driver. So by the time Luke was nine, he had lost his two sisters, which is more grief than lots of people experience in a lifetime. Now, dear Luke, <laughs> who's an aircraft engineer, he was working for ANSET when they collapsed. He was just four months away from his finishing his apprenticeship. If you read the, in the media that it was like working for a family, a family who really cared about each other, that's exactly what ANSET was like. So he had the grief of losing a company that he loved working for. Now he's just taken a package from Virgin last year because they were got merrily going down the gurgler and he had no idea what their future was. So grief doesn't always have to relate to death. It comes in all sorts of different packages. Now back to the emotions that I experienced. Sometimes I'd get angry and I, I'm known as the family peacemaker. My brother describes me as the peace-loving, tree-hugging sister. I'm not sure if I like that, that definition, but um, I'll do anything to kind of 
keep things calm. And I'm not an angry person, but I used to get so riled by seeing children who were locked in cars while their mums were in shops. Or children climbing around in cars while their mothers were driving around, or fathers, without the children in seatbelts. I thought, how dare they still be alive? They get dragged up and they survive, and Catherine was really well cared for, and she died. So I'd have my little pity party and then move on. There was also things that just grated on my nerves ridiculously. This is, emotions just don't make sense when you're going through really tough stuff. Catherine actually died of a sleep apnea condition that only adults die of. She was only the second child in South Australia diagnosed at autopsy with sleep apnea. People used to say, gosh, isn't four too old to die of SIDS? And honestly, every time they said that, I felt like strangling them. And I thought, I'm not like this, but it used to really irritate me. And it just made me aware that when you're going through emotional stuff, you just may not make sense or it may not be the normal you. I remember one day I was at the Adelaide Railway Station. It was really, really quiet. And back then, this is 32 years ago, next Monday, um, back then lots of people used to say, smile, it might never happen. I thought, if somebody says that to me today, I'm actually going to push them off the platform in front of a moving train. And what scared me is I honestly thought I was going to do that. That's how weird your emotions get. I started to wonder if I'd ever do anything properly again. My next issue was shopping. I'd go shopping, I'd be heading down this aisle and I'd see someone down the other end and I'd think, oh gosh, do they know that Catherine died? So I'd do a U-turn with my trolley. Now, anybody who's ever done shopping knows it's hard to do a U-turn with a trolley. You can't even walk straight with a trolley. Head down the next aisle, see a person and think, oh gosh, they know that Catherine died. I don't want to answer the how are you going question again. So I eventually worked out that if I shopped outside my local area, I didn't have to go through these questions. And then one day, sometime down the track, I just discovered I was shopping in the local supermarket and it was all okay. So it was a journey. Then I discovered, you know, on this emotional roller coaster ride, and I thought I was doing okay. I was working at the school dental clinic at Jeff's Cross and I had a brand new patient who was sitting in my chair. Um, having a chat with her and then her dad who was sitting over in the corner. And when I shut her case notes and went to put them on the desk, the date of birth literally hit me in the face. This 10-year-old girl was born on the day that our daughter died. I hadn't cried about Catherine for years and suddenly this curveball just kind of came around and hit me when I least expected it. So in, in my Unscrambling Grief book, I've got a lovely picture of this roller coaster ride and this guy's turning around saying, it surely can't get any worse than this and he misses seeing that there's a big loop the loop right in front of him. So we just never know what's around the corner. Anyone here know Anthony Robbins? Yep, international author and speaker and mindset tweaker um, extraordinaire. He says that you can't move on from pain unless you replace it with pleasure. For us, that was the hope that we might be able to have another baby. By now, I was a type 1 diabetic, so that added some complications. 
I'd had my tubes tied, so I had to have a reversal operation, all sorts of stuff. But the doctors said, yep, we will support you if that's what you want to do. Within a couple of months, I was pregnant again and knowing that I was going to be in for a tricky pregnancy. Um, I was laying down from 16 weeks in hospital from 24 weeks. And this time I made it to 36 weeks and a friend of mine, because it was an Olympic year, made me an Olympic gold medal and a certificate for a best effort yet. <laughs> so we had a daughter called Heidi. Now you can't replace children, but we felt like we had enough space in our hearts to have another child in the family. And we knew that Luke needed someone else in the family. Catherine was actually his best friend and she was gone. Now he has a really good friend called Heidi. And even though there's a 12 year aged gap, they get on really, really well. Now Luke's always been very quiet and I, I love your example of a recovering awkward engineer. Luke's very quiet. As an aircraft engineer, that was a perfect occupation for him because he doesn't say much, very logical and you know, organised and whatever. But this guy, who's, you know, was quite, quite tall and gangly in year seven, asked me if he could take Catherine as his show and tell when she came home from hospital. And I thought that was really, really, really sweet. Now, I was talking about how focusing on what brings you joy will create pleasure. So that can really help you to rebuild your life. I was talking before about how not all grief relates to death. My mum lost a leg in a car accident when she was 42 and had to learn to walk with an artificial limb. She never ever complained. She just got on with what she could do. When she was 74, she had her entire aorta replaced with stents. The operation went swimmingly, apart from the fact that she ended up with paralysis. It was the known risk for this particular operation. She still didn't complain. She just got on with going to Hampstead, doing rehab, learning how to get herself around in a wheelchair, knowing that she had to go to an aged care home. Just got on with life and didn't complain. She always focused on what she still had with an attitude of gratitude. And I'm really grateful that I had a mum like that because I think I got some of that in the DNA, but from her example, even in horrible stuff, I can always find the good. After the rawness of Catherine's death started to ease, I started to be grateful for the way she died. She didn't fade away before our eyes at the Women's and Children's Hospital of some ghastly disease. She wasn't raped and murdered like another, a number of young children were in Adelaide at that time. She wasn't abducted from her bedroom and never found. She simply went to bed, perfectly healthy, and didn't wake up. And I reckon if you have to lose a child, that's a pretty awesome way for it to go. And I actually firmly believe that she achieved her mission in her four and a half years of making as many people happy as she possibly could. Anyway, so anticipation of something good will create a distraction and ultimately give us the hope that we can move forward to a new normal. When you're engulfed in grief, it's necessary to talk I had two friends who listened to me endlessly prattle about goodness knows what um, for months and months on end, you know, not all day every day, but they were so patient with me. They never offered any advice. There was no judgment. They just simply sat and listened to me. It was absolutely amazing. 
And I think sometimes we underestimate the power of listening. It's a real gift. And if we can actually just put some time into spending to listen to somebody who needs it, so, so important. In the Unscrambling Grief book, that's, that's a photo of the cover, it says we can choose how we respond to what happens to us. It takes time, there's no recipe, it's an individual journey, so it's our journey in our time and our way. You can take three white Australian women, all who are 30 years old, who have a stillbirth, and they will all respond to it vastly differently. Depending on their DNA, depending on their family circumstances, there's a whole host of things that go, go together. So it's our journey. Mum bought a copy of Unscrambling Grief to give to one of her friends at the nursing home. And I've changed the name here, but her friend Gwen, when I went in to see her one day, she wiggled her finger at me. So I went over and sat next to her and she said, I've read your book. Can I tell you my story? Gwen was 94 years old and she'd been living at the nursing home for seven years. And from the time that she moved in, she said to the staff, I'm exhausted. I just want to go to sleep and not wake up. So that had been happening for seven years. She said, I had two miscarriages over 60 years ago and I've never been able to tell a soul because you weren't allowed to talk about it. So she went on to tell me her story and, and then she, she had one daughter. Gwen died three weeks later and I was actually talking to the staff. I said, you know, she told me this story. Um, they said that's what she needed to get out of her system. There is always something that's keeping people here. You know, for the people that just don't have a massive heart attack and, and go. You know, either waiting for somebody to, to come for a wedding or a baby to be born or someone to come from interstate, you know, to see them before they go. They said, that's what it was with Gwen. And I thought, well, if she's the only person that was helped with the book, then it was probably worth writing. If we look at the cover of the book, I told the graphic designer I wanted to start down here in a cold and lonely place, go on a slow trudging journey and end up somewhere over there in the light. When she came up with this picture, I was absolutely thrilled because what she didn't know, if you superimpose two photos that Ron and I took when we were in Europe at Christmas one year, Ron took a photo of me walking on a snowy path in Dresden, leaving footprints as I went. One day we caught a train to a little mountain just outside Zurich called Utelberg, and it was Christmas, so all the trees were absolutely laden with snow. You put those two photos together, and that's what you get. But I wanted to describe the journey. When you suddenly land in a grief situation, you are in a cold and lonely place. It doesn't matter how many people are around you, nobody can actually walk your journey for you. So you go on this slow trudging journey. And if you choose to see it, somewhere down there, there will be a spark of light. And if you keep walking on that road, one day you're going to be fully out in the light before you realise. That's how it was with our journey. So I, I just love that cover. With the book, I get the same response from all readers. They say, you're right, it does only take an hour to read. My theory was, if you've got to read a book on grief, 
And lots of people encourage me to write it because firstly, they can't understand that Ron and I are still married. And secondly, they can't understand that we can possibly be happy. They said, well, you need to write about it and let people know that there is hope when something goes wrong. And they said, most of the grief books are like textbooks. And people said, it's not like a textbook. It's really relational. You let us into your life. So it actually achieved its purpose. And then they said, um, I was crying one minute and laughing the next because it has cartoon illustrations to try and lighten it up along the way. Now back to coffee with my friend. She said, now let me explain why I want to thank you. You used to come into the shop quite often. You know, I met her on the first anniversary of her husband dying. And when she told me that, I thought, I'll go out to the car, get a book, write a little note to her, and I just took it back in, gave it to her at the checkout. And over the years, we developed a bit of a friendship, just with our little mini conversations. On this particular day, I went in and she said, you never, ever came in right on closing time, but you did this day. She said, that day I had planned to drive home from work, get out of the car and walk to the edge of my property and off the waterfall. She said, I changed my mind because we had a conversation and I knew someone cared. I had no idea that she was feeling that way and no idea that our little mini one-minute conversations at a checkout had made a difference. Ordinary people, ordinary conversations and ordinary relationships really do matter. Thank you.